Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, You know, we're going to be doing these Zoom things uh, until further notice. So just in case you haven't been getting the link and and you'd like to sort of like be be in in the fold here, uh, you can just send me your your email in the in that in that chat box, and I'll make sure that you're on the list so that you get all the information and everything like that. So, um, Pesach, time of freedom. Uh, I want to continue with our discussion. We we were talking about um, freedom last week, and and I just want to go a little further into the topic, a little deeper into the topic. Just try to figure out what what freedom is all about, and. Um, why, why this is such a special time of year, what, what the spiritual opportunities um, that are presenting themselves are and how we can take advantage of them. So, so uh, a good friend of mine told me that, that he heard this from his seven-year-old. Now, it would, it would blow my mind into a million pieces if, if he came up on, with this on his own, but, but regardless, it's just, it's so good. So, so here it is. He says, if you don't know where you're going, any bus will take you there, right? So, so I, I love that. I'm going to say it again because I've been thinking about it a lot this holiday. If you don't know where you're going, any bus will take you there. So, so what does that mean? It's like one of those things where you hear it. At least I'll speak for myself. It sounds so good, but what does it mean? You, you know it's deep, but what does it mean, you know? So so let's... let's uh, Let's try to unpack it. Let's try to figure it out and see how it applies to, to Pesach and everything like that. So if you don't know where you're going, any bus will take you there. Um, I'll tell you, I, I posed this question at my table. I'll tell you what my 16-year-old daughter said, okay? So she wants to be a psychologist. So, so here was her answer. I'm going to give a different answer. I'm going to give a simpler answer in a moment. But her answer was so good, I, I, I feel like it, it deserves to be mentioned. She says, what does it mean if you don't know where you're going, any bus will take you there? She says, deep down, you really do know where you're going. So subconsciously, you go to that that vehicle, which is going to get you into that direction. I thought that was pretty interesting. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a simpler answer. But but maybe maybe more in keeping maybe what the uh, person who came up with that phrase maybe had in mind. If you don't know where you're going, any bus will take you there. I think that what that means is you have to know where you're going. Otherwise, there are endless distractions in life. You have to know where you're going. Otherwise, there are endless distractions in life. And everything will, if you don't have a plan, if you don't know where you're going, basically you're going to be open to endless distractions. That's, that's what it is. So, so on, on a very simple level, on a very nuts and bolts level, if I told you you were free, or if someone said to me, you're free now. My, my first instinct would be, finally, I get to do what I want to do. 
But but do you understand how for that to happen, you have to know what you want to do? Do you see that? that? That freedom doesn't work without a plan. Because otherwise, you're just free to spin around in circles, and then we wouldn't really call that freedom. We would just call that endless be, endlessly being distracted. So for freedom really to have traction in, in your life, in, in our life, for it to have traction, there has to be a vision. You have to be free to do something, to implement a vision. So, so that can be very challenging because, you know, sometimes, like I know, uh, I've heard this from many people, just to give an example. Um, we, we probably all have different uh, versions of this in, in our life, but... Um, you know, the Upper West Side of New York is is known as one of the sort of like the, the world famous places where if you want to get married, you move to the Upper West Side of New York because there's so many there's so many singles there. And yet a lot of people move to the Upper West Side of New York and they don't get married. And and the question is, why? There's like all wherever you were before, there weren't enough choices. Now you've come to the place where there's this endless buffet of single people and people aren't getting married. Why? And and I've heard this from many people who live there. There are too many choices. <laughs> you know, like you. You're you're dating this person, but meanwhile, like you know, you're looking over there and you're looking over there at the same time, and 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 all the rest. So, so <clears throat> it's very easy unless you have a vision. That's why um, my my wife used to give this piece of very practical advice, which is that if you're if you're looking to get married, make a list, make a list, and if if someone fits your list. Then, then have the courage to commit. You know that's th- that's the thing. So, so anyway, I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper because, you know, I think one of the to our detriment, to our detriment, w- one of the pieces of historical context which is often either unknown or left out of the whole um, Pesach story the whole story of freedom, is, is the real origin of it. And, and most of us think that um, basically we were slaves in Egypt, and then Moshe comes down, and then there are all the plagues, and then, you know, God, God takes us out of Egypt. But that, that's not the start of the story. The start of the story is by the burning bush. And, um, and what happens there? Is that is that God says to Moshe, I want you to take the my children, the Jewish people, out of out of Egypt and bring them back here. Um, and then the 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 this stellar fact, which we all have to know, is that the burning bush, and it says it in the Chumash itself, was actually located at Mount Sinai. So the story of Pesach doesn't really start in Egypt at all. The story of Pesach starts at Mount Sinai. And God says, 
at the burning bush, at Mount Sinai. If you look in the Chumash, the word Choreb is used. But Choreb and, Mount, and Sinai are, are synonymous. So, so God says, I want you to take the Jews out of Egypt to bring them back here to get the Torah. So the whole, the whole exercise of freedom is just that we should be free in order to keep the Torah. Now, we'll, we'll go further into what that means in a moment. But, but what, I'm, what I'm trying to um, convey here is that there was a plan when God took us out of Egypt. It wasn't just, okay, I'm just taking you out of Egypt. And, you know, it's like, you know, you've, you're, your kids are off from school. Let's see, we got to plan some activities. I, I'm going to give you the Torah at Mount Sinai. That should be good for a day. That'll keep you all occupied. You'll be happy. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was the point of the entire thing. And now I'll just sum up everything that I've been saying in one line. And I heard it from Reb Shlomo. And he said the following. If you don't have a plan, you can't be free. That's, that's, that's everything in one line. You need a plan in order to be free. Um, so, so, so I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper because what we, what we touched on last week, and, and, and I want to give you more examples of this and, and explain it better, is that, is that freedom is, is more than just, just, I want to do whatever I want to do. You see, if we're not attached to something, if we're not attached to the ultimate truth, if we're not attached to something that's beyond us, we just become slaves to ourselves. You see, freedom without a plan, freedom without a vision, freedom without a concept that there's something beyond us is just another form of servitude, but it's slavery to yourself. It's slavery to whatever you're in the mood for or whatever you're not in the mood for. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty low form of slavery, actually. It, it might look nice on the outside. Because, wow, he does whatever he wants. Look at him. She goes wherever she wants. You know, I mean, it sort of looks, from the American Western perspective, it kind of looks like the ultimate. But on the inside, there's so much emptiness. Because if the person doesn't have a genuine plan and isn't thinking beyond themselves, then it's just sort of like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know I experienced it in my own life. And I just found that whole era of my life pretty depressing, you know, because each of us, no matter how great our self-esteem is, we know deep down that all of us are just limited. And so if you're limited, if you're serving yourself and you're just a limited entity, like it's just a more familiar prison, but it's, it's no less a prison. So I want to, I want to, I want to just go through the steps of saying Shema Yisrael and and some of the kavanas, some of the holy intentions that we have in mind when we say those things. 
and apply it to the discussion that we've been having up until now. And, and I think you'll see something beautiful, in, in my opinion, something beautiful. Okay, so there's certain things that a person has to have in mind when they say Shema Yisrael. Um, the main thing is a person is supposed to be all Malchus Shemayim. So you, you take upon yourself that I'm being all Malchus Shemayim. Okay, so what does that mean? That's Hebrew. What does it mean? It means that you're, this is a bit of a kind of an old-fashioned word, yoke, Y-O-K-E, like the yoke of heaven, right? What, what, what does that mean? So that if you, if you imagine like a, um, like a farm animal, the farm animal when he's plowing is, 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 attached, to, is attached to the plow. So he's, he's yoked to the plow. He's pulling the plow along with him, okay? So, so that's, that's the kind of the, 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 the farming version of a yoke. But what's the holy divine version of a yoke, okay? When a person, when a human being, a, a, you know, a, a, an emanation of godliness says that they're yoking themselves to heaven. What, what, what does that mean, right? It's a whole other idea. That means that wherever you walk, you're pulling heaven along with you. You're pulling heaven down to earth. And you're pulling heaven along whatever activity that you're involved in. That's what you're doing. Does everyone hear? It's a very beautiful idea, actually, right? So there's a, there's a very cool hint to this idea, because this is one of those key phrases in Torah learning, O Malchus Shemayim. It's, um, it would be spelled, the first letters are O is Ayin, Malchus is Mem, Shemayim is shin. Now, if you look at the word, and you're supposed to have that in mind when you say the Shema. Now, look at the word Shema. Shema is shin mem ayin. So if you read those letters backwards, it's the first letters of O Malchus Shemayim. Isn't that cool? Right? So that's, that's, that's what you have in mind. Now, now, that's all well and good. But I'm going to raise a problem with it. And I'm going to show you how the next line, Baruch Shem Kavod Ve'ed, is the solution to this problem. Okay? So what are you supposed to have in mind when you say, Baruch Shem Kavod Ve'ed? You're supposed to have in mind a makabling the old mitzvahs, biava, with love. Okay? So... You know, Kabbalistically speaking, there's like ten spherot, and the, the, the bottom sphere, the bottom sphere, the, the, the realm that we inhabit here, we can call it earth, but the sort of the, the spiritual name for it, the, the, the technical name for this dimension is um, Malchus, okay, which would be translated as kingship. And it relates to the mouth, interestingly. Okay, so so Malchus is the this this bottom vessel, which all the heavenly vessels pour into. That that's 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 the realm that we inhabit, Malchus. And um, and you can see that hinted at in the phrase. 
Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuso. Do you hear the word Malchus in Malchuso? Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuso Leilam Ve'ed. Blessed, Baruch Shem Kavod, blessed is the name of, of God's glory forever and ever. But it's referring to this realm, Malchus, okay? The Shema already is talking about the entire expanse of godliness. But now in the next, in the next phrase, we say, that I'm accabling the all mitzvahs, the, the yoke of mitzvahs with love. And you're hinting at the fact that you're getting more specific geographically, right? You're not just talking about the great expanse of godliness, but you're saying that I'm going to pull down God's light and, and it's going to be yoked to me wherever I go, whatever activity I'm doing, I'm going to bring the heavenly light into this realm, and I'm going to do it with love. Okay, now let me tell you how that's a solution to the, to the previous problem, okay? You see, if I just say in the Shema, I'm cobbling, I'm taking upon myself the all Malchus Shemayim, the yoke of heaven. Let me tell you what the problem with that is. The problem is, is that there's me and there's God and we're two separate entities. You see? Because I'm macabling the yoke of Shemayim, which means I'm me, and then there's a Shemayim, there's a heaven, and I'm attaching heaven to me. But really deep down, there's me and there's the other. Okay, the other might be God, might be very high, but really there's just me and there's this other. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to accept the greatness of the higher power upon me, but really we're two separate entities, right? Because just think of the farm example again. Before the farming starts, there's the ox and then there's the plow. <laughs> They're two separate things, right? But then we fix it with the next line. Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuso Le'elam Va'ed. I'm cobbling the old mitzvahs biava. Now, the great, one of, maybe the greatest gematria ever, just because it's so simple. Ava, which means love. See, in the second step, you say, I'm not just taking on the yoke of heaven. I'm going to do the mitzvahs with love. Ava is gematria echad. Ava, love, is the number 13, which is the same number as the word echad, which means oneness. You see, once you makabel the ol malchus shamayim, once you take on the yoke of heaven, there's still you and there's still God. But if you do it with love, and love is oneness, then there's not any duality anymore. <laughs> then you're just a pure exp extension of godliness. Then you just disappear into God. Not only that, but we said that you have that in mind while you're talking about this realm called Malchus, which is this world. This world doesn't become a separate entity anymore. This world then just seamlessly merges into the heavens. Because you're taking on this idea with love. You're connecting Malchus, this realm, right, 
to the rest of eternity, to the higher realms, with love, with oneness. And then all of a sudden you're repairing any breach that exists between this world and the higher worlds because you're making it all one. And the secret of making everything one is love. Because the word ava, love, and the word echad is the same number. They're one and the same. So, so this, this world is a vessel for the higher worlds. And, and if we take, if we take, if we take on like this relationship with love, if we become free to love, this is the truest freedom. This is the truest freedom. But you see, that has a structure to it. And again, this, this goes very much against the Western contemporary idea. Because the idea that there should be structure within the realm of love is very counterintuitive. You see, one of the most difficult the one of the most difficult concepts for us to accept is the idea that something that the Talmud says. The Talmud poses a question, which is what is the greater mitzvah? Something that you do from your the goodness of your heart, or something that you do because you're commanded to do it? And if you went up to a hundred people on the sidewalk, right, and you ask them, you know, what's the bigger mitzvah to do it from the from the goodness of your heart or because you're commanded to do it? I'm sure ninety nine percent of the people would tell you to do it from the goodness of their heart. And the Talmud says, you know what? Not the case. The bigger mitzvah is to do it because you're commanded to do it. And this is a very, very challenging idea from the way that we've been raised. Because, you see, if I'm doing it from the goodness of my heart, you know what? You know what the key word in that phrase? I'm doing it from the goodness of my heart. There's one word that's screaming out me, the word me. And now we're back to the initial problem again. There's me and there's you. And guess and guess in the depths of my subconscious who I think came first. Me. <laughs> you know, I remember hearing, you know, like Rebbe Nachman of, of Breslov is, 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 really was not into philosophy. He said, just the philosophers are just going to confuse you. And so here's like one of the one of the things that he tried to protect us from, thoughts like this, but we, we have to explore them because our, our mind needs to um, address these issues in, the, in, in this day and age. <clears throat> did man invent God or did God invent man? And again, this is the answer, obviously, is that God invented man. 
but in the deep, deep recesses of our heart, we think we invented God. And then we pat ourselves on the back because we say, not only did I invent a God, wasn't that nice of me? (laughs) But I'm going to do all the nice things that he tells me to do. (laughs) Um, Someone is uh, reaching out here to... uh... So, so again, one of my all-time favorite, favorite... Uh, Torahs that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Beis Yaakov, he was the second Ishbitzer Rebbe, was deep, deep down, every person thinks that they created themselves. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Now, it's not a rational thought, because we know we have parents. And yet, this is this is how it works. This is how it works. And this has to be This has to be uprooted from our minds. Now, I'm telling you, the only way that you can uproot this thought from your mind is by having a love relationship with God. That's the only way it happens. And and what we call this, what all the Rebbes call this, is dveikiskite. That's called cleaving. And this idea of cleaving is like, is like what the what the Rambam calls walking around being lovesick with God. And the way you get to this place is by appreciating everything that you have and just thanking God and finding things to thank God for, to actually being ag- 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 aggressively looking for things to thank God for. That's how you cultivate this type of love relationship. Otherwise, it's not going to happen because what I've noticed, and again, this isn't rational. No one does this on purpose, consciously, but I've noticed that this is what's going on with a large part of humanity, which is the following, which is I am boycotting God and I will end my boycott of you, God, when you give me what it is that I want. Then then we'll be, then we can talk. Give me what I want, God. Then, then we can talk. Then we're in a relationship. But if you think about it, and, and, and this always blows my mind whenever I think about it, is that our prayers are being answered all of the time. We're just not praying them. <laughs> now, let me, let me give you a few examples of that. I walk out of my house, and there's my car. Now, that's the answer to a prayer. Please, God, don't let my car be stolen while I sleep. But I never prayed it. But my prayer was answered. The prayer I never prayed was answered. Then I get into my car and I turn the key and it starts. Again, my prayer was answered. The only thing is I didn't pray it. <laughs> what, what was the prayer? Please, God, When my car, which isn't stolen in the morning, is still there, please, may it start. (laughs) Then I get to work. Again, my prayer was answered, only I didn't pray it. (laughs) Please, God, may I have a safe journey to the office. Nothing should happen. So, if you go through life like that, and... And I would suggest, I would suggest 
See, the world would probably call that a very spiritual way to go through life. But if there's a God, and there is, and if nothing happens without his direct involvement, which is also the case, then I don't think this is being spiritual. I think that this is living in reality. See, I think that we we have to re-own and take back the condescending point of view that secular society has sort of like um, put on what I would call the actual realistic mind frame. What, what I'm talking about right now is realism, is reality. Because if you posit a God, all of this stems from that thought. This is realism. And I think that's very, I think that's a very, very important distinction. You know, so often, whoever um, defines the terms or the categories wins the argument just by, just by setting up the terms of the argument. So I'll give you an example that I heard from Rabbi Beryl Wine from Jewish history, which was there was a, a famous, unfortunate, but famous clash between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim. And of course, there was the epic excommunication of the Hasidim by the Vilna Gaon, right? That's, a, you know, like a, a very amazing chapter in Jewish history. A lot of, a lot of hardship came from that, unfortunately. But I, I want I to discuss what he had in mind, or my understanding of what he had in mind when, when he did that. But let's just finish the previous point first which is that um, the, the, the names of the two groups were the Hasidim and the Misnagdim. Hasidim means the pious ones. The Misnagdim means those who are against, by implication, the pious ones. Now, here's my question to you. Who do you think named the two groups? Here's the name of the two groups, the pious ones and those who are against the pious ones. <laughs> it's a pretty easy question. <laughs> the Hasidim named the groups. <laughs> and guess who won the battle? The Hasidim. <laughs> because who wants to be against the pious ones? So, so how we define the terms, how we define the terms is very, very important. And so that's why I'm making a big deal of this, that, that, that for a person to, to, to cultivate this love relationship, to, to pray for everything. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says you have to pray for everything before you get it, even the most simple things. Like he criticized one of his top chassidim because the, 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 the chassid was at a table and he asked for someone to like, I don't know what it was exactly, pass something to him or or whatever it was, and, and Rebbe Nachman wanted to know, did you pray for it first? Like, can you imagine you're, you're at a Shabbos table or something like that, and you want someone to pass the coleslaw or something like that? Like, would you think to pray to God for the coleslaw before you, you ask the person to pass the coleslaw? But I mean, if you really, really wanted to be on the level, who's the coleslaw coming from? 
It's all incoming from God. So is it a crazy prayer? Is it, is it an inappropriate prayer? But let me tell you why, why it's so beautiful to pray for things before you get them. Because when you receive them, then you're receiving them straight from God. You're not receiving them from, from, you know, Joe Blow on the street. And you can go through life constantly receiving directly from God. But the secret is you have to pray for it first. Do you understand? And that cultivates this love. And what I'm saying, and what I'm saying is, I'm suggesting to you that this is not a spiritual way to go through life. What I'm suggesting to you is that if there's a God and he's intimately involved in our lives, which he is, and nothing happens without him, which is true, then this is the highest realism. And that we should make an effort to re-own the word realism in this world. Okay, so now I want to get back to this idea of freedom, and I want to go back to this, this, um, this conflict, this dilemma that, that happened in Jewish history between the Vilnagon and the Hasidim. Now remember, you know, you always, nothing happens in a vacuum. There, you, you always, if you, if you want to be a historian, or if you just want to be an intelligent person, you always have to have a context. Context is very, very, very important. Okay? I came up with a theory in life one time, okay? Which is that when it comes to analyzing human behavior, if you can narrow something down to two causes and you're wondering which one is it? Why did I do it? Was it because of this or because of that? If you can narrow something down to two things, it's already both of them. That's my theory, okay? Because people are complicated. People do some things for multiple reasons, all right? That's the context. That's called context, where you really understand a person and their environment. Once you understand a person in an environment, or you understand a historical dilemma and its environment, the different societal causes going on at the time, then you can begin to understand really what's going on. Okay. So the context of the Vilnagon excommunicating the Hasidim was the epic disaster of Shabbatai Tzvi. Shabbatai Tzvi was a false messiah in Jewish history. We've had several. And um, that really kind of like, in, in, to this day, we're still suffering the, the consequences psychologically of, of what went on there. But basically what happened was you had this unbelievable flowering of spirituality in Kabbalah, this was at the time of the Ari in Sfat. And, and so, like, really, like, the, all the gates of, of the mind were really open and everything like that. And, and unfortunately, it created a space for this, you know, this person to, to, to do the wrong thing. And... Um, and so the Jewish, the Jewish world was really burnt by this guy. And, and now when, you know, a couple of hundred years later, um, when there was another great outpouring of spirituality, which was spearheaded by the 
the Hasidim, and was a very important movement in, in, in Judaism, in the Jewish world at the time, because there was such a alienation from spirituality at that time. You had basically the scholars were, were a, a limited number of people because the Jewish people were very, very poor, and they could only support a limited number of people. So, so there was a track system. At a young age, you basically were recognized as a genius or a great learner, in which case you were put on that track where you were eligible to be supported by the community to continue to learn and to become a great scholar, or you were not, which was the majority of the people. And so the great majority of the people became tailors or shoemakers or lumberjacks or whatever it was, and they, they never were able to get this advanced education. And then there was, in society, there was a, um, there was a bias a bias that really the people who are serving God are the people who are sitting in front of open books, but really the people who are working for a living and who are out in the fields are alienated from God. And so great low self-esteem crept into the great majority of the Jewish people at the time, and they felt like they were lost causes. So, so you see... The Hasidic movement, which, which addressed this issue of the Jewish masses, historically it was very necessary. And, and what the Baal Shem Tov was able to do, and, and his followers, all the Rebbes after him, were able to show people that God was absolutely everywhere and in everything, and that even when they're out in the field, even when they're working, no matter what they're doing, that, that they can connect to God in a very beautiful and meaningful way that can transform the whole world. And that it's not just about Talmud Torah, it's also about tefillah. It's, it's, it's also about prayer and talking to God and attaching yourself to God in everything that you do. That tremendous light can come into the world and tremendous vessels for that light can come into the world. So, so now, now we have, let's return back to the Vilna Gaon now. Now we have a very interesting bit of context, and now we can re, re-explore this conflict. On the one hand, you have a new explosion of, 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 of spirituality in the Jewish world. Now, seen from one perspective, that could be, wow, we're heading right down the path of Shabbat Tzvi, of the false Messiah again. Do you see how that makes perfect sense? Seen from the Hasidic point of view, You've got masses of Jews who are alienated from Yiddishkeit and from God. So this, this Hasidic movement, this, this explosion of spirituality is a great corrective and a great tikkun that's taking place in the world. So it depends on which perspective you're looking at it from. On the, on the one hand, it's like, oh no, I know how this story ends. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Or no, Everything is about to be saved. <laughs> That's, this is called context. This is context, okay? Okay. So let's go deeper now. Let's go deeper. Because what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to show you right now is a point that we made earlier. And I, I want to show you it to you on a deeper level right now in terms of what the Vilna Gon was, was was concerned about or at least my understanding about it, okay, on one level, and how it ties into what we've been talking about up until now. 
You see, the vessel for freedom, everything needs a vessel. Everything needs a vessel. The vessel for freedom, if you want to be able to macabre freedom, if you want to be able to possess freedom, the clee, the vessel for freedom is a plan. You need a vision and you need a plan. Once you have a vision and a plan, you can hold this great blessing called freedom. Okay. But we have this issue again, which is that for most people, the idea that freedom is I can do anything that I want to do. What are you telling me that the initial vision that God took us out of Egypt in order to bring us to Mount Sinai, what, what's, what is that all about? Because I thought freedom means I can do anything that I want to do. Now you're telling me I'm free to do 613 mitzvahs. Like, that's not my intuitive sense of what freedom is. But now you're telling me, wait a second, these mitzvahs are the gateway to the infinite. I'm free because I'm attaching myself beyond my own limitations to the infinite. But still I'm working for God. There's still me and there's still God. And we're still, we're, 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 we're different, we're different entities. Ah, but now you say, but wait a second, there's this thing called love. And if you love God, then you're attaching yourself to the infinite in the most beautiful way. And now there's only oneness again. Now, by the way, let me pause to make a a, a brief aside, but I think it's an important aside. And you'll see a a proof, if you will, um, for what I'm saying right now. What do we read on Shabbos Cholamoid, the, the the intermediate Shabbos? Remember, Pesach is seven days, or it's eight days outside of Israel, which means that um, that if it's seven or eight days, it has to include at least one Shabbos, right? So what special thing did the Chachamim, our sages, instruct us to say during, during, during Shabbos Cholomite? And the answer is Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, which is the ultimate love poem between God and the Jewish people. Do do you understand? Do you understand that the key to freedom is love? Do you understand that? Because otherwise, you're just bossing me around. You're just telling me what to do. But if it's love, then we're on this same journey together. We both want the same thing. And we're attached and there's no difference between us. Because the gematria of Ava is Echad. Love is one. So, so there's a very beautiful clue, a very beautiful secret that the sages are giving us by telling us to read Shir Shirim during Pesach. Because they're telling us that this, this, this entity, this, this entity doesn't get off the ground without love. Okay. Now, let's get back to this challenging idea with the Vilna Gon. So here's what I read, and, and I'm just going to put it in my own words how I understood it. One of the things that, that, um, that he was concerned about was that the Hasidim are talking about how God is absolutely everywhere, 
which of course is a Jewish concept. And God fills God's light, fills everything, which of course is a Jewish concept. Remember, the Vilna Gon himself was a great Kabbalist. Um, but now here comes the problem. You ready for the problem? And this is what Shabbatites feed it. This is where it gets all wacky. All right. It's when you say, if God fills the entire world, then why shouldn't I eat pork? What's the difference between something that's forbidden and something that's permitted? If God fills absolutely everything, then everything is holy. You see, this is what distinguishes Torah from, from other modes of thought and maybe many other religions as well. I'm no expert in in comparative religion. But what's amazing about Torah is we say God absolutely fills the entire world, and yet you can eat this, but you can't eat that. You can do this activity, but you can't do that activity. And there's no contradiction. See, this is big. Uh, let me let me say this again, because because again, the the Western contemporary mind really has trouble with this thought, and it's very important that you that you hear it spelled out in an ABC type of way. We say, God fills the entire world. God's light is absolutely in everything, and at the same time, we say that you can eat this, but you can't eat that, and you can do this, but you can't do that. You know, I saw something so beautiful from the Pshiska Rebbe, Rebbe Simcha Bunim of Pshisk, that was the, the Kutzka Rebbe's Rebbe. He says, every positive commandment says, whispers to you, be wise. And every prohibition, every negative commandment whispers to you, don't be a fool. Isn't that something? The positive commandments tell you, do this, meaning be wise. Don't do this, meaning don't be a fool. That's the Reb Simcha Bunim of Pshisk. And so, and so freedom in this realm, freedom in a body, freedom in a material, physical universe is, is understanding that there's a path. See, imagine you're in a maze. Imagine you're in a maze. And you say, I want the freedom to go in a straight line. But if you run in a straight line in a maze long enough, you just hit yourself against a wall and you can't get any further. But can you imagine, I say to you, you're in a maze, and I say to you, take five steps, turn left, take seven steps, turn right, take, take nine steps, 
go backwards, <laughs> then turn right, then turn left again. You say, hey, brother, leave me alone. <laughs> I want to be free. And I'm telling you how to get out of the maze. I'm telling you how to be free. You say, it's too many instructions. I, it's too many instructions. I don't feel free. But meanwhile, I'm getting you out of the maze. This is what the Torah is doing. You're in this situation. Okay, here's the plan. You see the crackers on that table? Good. You see the meat on that table? Bad. Turn left. Left to the crackers. <laughs> be wise. Don't be a fool. <laughs> Don't go to the meat. <laughs> you see, because we have to have this recognition on a deep level that this world is so much bigger than what we see with our eyes. And again, you know, that used to be the realm of religion. But now it's the realm of science and math and physics. That there are dimensions and life forms that are out there that we don't see with our eyes. You don't, you don't have to be a mystic anymore. You can be a great intellectual, a great rationalist, and understand that there's something beyond this world. So, so the question is, you know, how ambitious do you want to be? How free do you want to be? How free do you want to be? And, and that's up to us. That's up to us. I mean, it's the most beautiful thing in the world, and on some level it's kind of a sad thing also at the same time is that ultimately God wants to be partners with us and wants us to arrive at these thoughts and to make these decisions that we want to be in that relationship with God. You know, it's a, a classic Hasidic story. I'm sure you've all heard it a million times, but it's so good at the same time. I forgot the names, unfortunately. But um, a little kid runs to his father, the Rebbe, and he's crying. And the the father says, you know, what happened? He says, we were playing hide and seek and I was hiding and nobody looked for me. And the Rebbe said back, Oi, imagine how God feels. Right? Can you imagine God's hiding and no one's looking for him? So... So that's, that's up to us. It's kind of funny because we think that God's so mighty, God made absolutely everything, you know? And yet on the deepest level, God wants to be found. You would think if he's telling me to do this and he's telling me to do that, then I should be able to see him, right? He's so bossy. Where is he? But we're missing the point. We're missing the point if we think that that's all there is to God, that there is this almost this vulnerability to the relationship that, that, that he longs for with us, which is us that we, we should find him.
and that we should want it and that we should search for it. You know, what kind of God would 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 posit a husband-wife relationship with his subjects? Right? Because it says at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, when God gave us the Torah, was like a chuppah. Only a God that really genuinely wanted an intimate relationship. I mean, if I, if I were God, I would say, you know what? King and subject, that, that's fine with me. <laughs> let's just, let's leave it at king and subject. Everyone will get the point. <laughs> no further explanation needed. I mean, how beautiful is God that he posited husband and wife? Right? In addition to other things. In addition to best friend. In addition to mother and child, by the way. In addition to parent and child. But husband and wife. I mean, I, I'm emphasizing that right now because Shir Hashirim, which we read on Pesach, is, is all about husband and wife, you know? Which is all about freedom. Which is all about love. Right? Which is all about searching for God. And wanting that in our lives. And again, all of this is under the rubric, I will argue, of realism, of actually living in reality, that this isn't spirituality that I'm talking about right now, that this is actually the bread and butter of reality, and that we should assert that, and we should reclaim that, because that's the truth. All right, you know, I, I just want to close with this 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 next thought. I've I've always had this question. We're counting the Omer now. We started counting the Omer. Today is actually the third day of the Omer. Okay. Um so the reason why we're counting the Omer, you know, on a spiritual level, on a again on a very simple level is because we're counting the days till we get to Mount Sinai. Again, because Pesach and Shavuos, Shavuos is the holiday where we get the Torah at Mount Sinai, Pesach and Shavuos are, um, are, uh, are, are intimately connected. In fact, there's an opinion that all of the days between Pesach and Shavuos are cholamoit, in between days, because Pesach and Shavuos are actually one long holiday. So, so we're counting 50 days. On the 50th day, we receive the Torah. After we leave Egypt, on the 50th day, we got the Torah at Mount Sinai. So now, if you, if you actually look in the prayer books, if you look at the count, we, we only count to 49. And every year, this, this just astounds me. If the whole point of the counting is to get to the number 50, and yet we don't count the number 50. Isn't that interesting? You know, you count to 49, but the whole point was to get to 50. So why don't we count to 50? So the answer that I came up with, that um, I'm sure other people say it, but, but this, is, this, gives, this satisfies me, I like this answer, is, is that the difference between when we count day one and day two, the difference between those days, 
or the difference between 18 and 19, those days, or the difference between 35 and 36, those days, cannot compare to the difference between the 49th day and the 50th day when all the heavens opened up and we got the Torah from heaven. In other words, the distance between day 49 and day 50 is like a quantum jump that we can't simply just count to 50. You can't count to 50 because if you count to the 50th day, you're putting parameters on that day and that day was an infinite day, the day that we got the Torah. So we don't count it because you can't put a number on it because you can't you, you, you can't put parameters around it. Okay. So now, now I want to ask the question backwards that we've learned in previous years, which is, if the whole point is to count to the number 50, you know how you can solve the problem? On the first day of Pesach, you begin the counting of the Omer. You see, we don't count the Omer on the first day of Pesach. We start counting on the second day of Pesach. But if we start counting on the first day of Pesach, then we can get to the number 50. (laughs) That's my new thought this year. We could have solved the problem. Just begin the count on the first day instead of on the second day. It's so easy. The solution is so easy. So why don't we do it? Because God says, start counting the day after Pesach. (laughs) It's a straight verse in the Torah. (laughs) Okay, so now, here's the point of all this. Why don't we start counting on the first day of Pesach? Because the first day of Pesach is also infinite. Because that level of freedom is also infinite. An infinite light, this infinite light of freedom is coming into the world. And you can't put a number on it. But you know what you can do? And now I'm wrapping everything up. You can make a vessel for it. You can't put a number on it. But you can make a vessel for it. And that's having a plan. And the greatest plan, the greatest plan that we can that we can have for ourselves is to dedicate ourselves to living a life where we're able to attach ourselves to God with love and to know Him in everything that we do. And to understand that God can fill the entire world. But still, there's no contradiction between the fact that there's certain things that we can do and certain things that we can't do. And that's our greatest privilege because that's our opportunity to actually serve the infinite one in the context of the finiteness of our body in this material universe. We get to actually do something that's meaningful in that way. We get to exert ourselves for God and to create that husband-wife relationship, that love relationship, which yields only one thing, which is echad, which is oneness. Okay. Well, uh,
we'll stop here. Okay, so so just uh, one final final thought um, re- regarding the the burning bush. Um, so I heard a teaching uh, that many many people saw the burning bush, but only Moshe actually turned to look at it and to investigate it. Um, and I, I I told you a beautiful Torah in the name of. Um, Rabbi Matasyahu is Solomon, and he needs a refuah shlema. He's been diagnosed with, uh, with um, the coronavirus. Uh, his name is Matasyahu Chaim ben Etta. So the, he should have a refuah shlema. Um, anyway, so, so, uh, so Moshe turns to the burning bush, and that burning bush, many people just walked by it. And and of course, um, Rabbi Solomon said this beautiful thought that uh, that why is it that that Hashem waited for Moshe to stand on the ground to tell him that this ground is holy? Take off your shoes. In other words, God could have said, "Take off your shoes because the ground you're about to stand on is holy," right? But it it. In a weird way, it, it it seems like, just a simple reading, it seems like God waited for Moshe to do something wrong. Moshe steps on the holy ground, and then God says, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. So so what Rabbi Solomon um, said so beautifully was that the ground wasn't holy until Moshe stepped on it. In other words, because many people walked by that burning bush, because Moshe went to the burning bush because he desired to understand God better and the world better and truth better, and he wanted to investigate and go deeper in terms of his understanding, that desire itself is what made that ground holy. Okay, that's what Rabbi Solomon says. But I want to, I want to add a different thought um, in the context of freedom. What does it mean to be free? Uh, so I learned in math, in, in high school math, um, in geometry, that a straight line, if you look at a straight line, it actually seems to be a solid entity. But actually, mathematically speaking, a, 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 a line is composed of an infinite series of dots. Now, that's a really interesting idea, because a dot a dot is a, a distinct entity. A dot isn't connected to the area in, in front of it or below it. So, so I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You see, let's say I'm on a diet and I'm walking toward the refrigerator. But I don't want to walk toward the refrigerator but I'm weak or whatever it is. So as soon as I start walking toward the refrigerator, I say to myself, "Uh, you're already walking toward the refrigerator. It's over already. So I open up the refrigerator and I eat something. You see, that, that mentality comes from the idea that a line is a solid entity. You see, because since I'm already walking toward the refrigerator, I'm already solidly within the line. There's no escape, basically. So 
I'm doing it. But if you understand the, the deeper truth, that a line is composed of a series of dots, and that each dot is not connected to the dot below it or the dot above it, then when I'm walking to the refrigerator, I'm not trapped within this line at all. I'm not trapped within this path at all. I can turn at any moment because every dot is not connected to the other dot. So wherever I am, I can go in this direction, I can go in that direction, I can go in this direction. You see, that's real freedom. See, I heard Reb Shlomo say, in the name of the Yishbitzer Rebbe, that the deepest way of serving God is asking yourself, what does God want from me this moment? And if you have the ability to look at the situation that you're in, who needs something this moment? What is what what scene has been created for me to serve God in this moment? And I have that level of sensitivity and that consciousness. Then even if I was going to do something else, I can turn in any direction. Because I understand that I'm not part of a line. That it's just a series of dots. So I can pivot at any moment. That's that's real freedom. That's real freedom. And so, so I imagine that there are people who were walking by the burning bush and they saw it, some odd phenomena, you know, ahead or in the corner of their eye. But they said, you know, I'm already walking in this direction. I'm going to continue to walk in this direction. <laughs> Moshe pivoted. Moshe was free. Moshe pivoted and he said, oh, I'm going to check that out. And, and so, so in that opening, look what came down. <laughs> Freedom for the whole world. Right? Unbelievable. See, so... So again, I'm just going to tell you another example of the di a dialectic in Judaism. A dialectic means both sides are true. It's not a paradox. A paradox is how can both sides be true? Right? Here's a paradox. Can God make a stone so heavy that he can't lift it? Well, if God is God, he should be able to create anything. So he should be able to create a stone that he can't lift. But if God is God, how could there be a stone that's too heavy to lift? <laughs> that, that's a paradox. <laughs> this is a dialectic. What I'm about to tell you now is a dialectic where both sides are true. They're not in contradiction to each other. Both sides are true. Which is that I have the ability to turn at any moment and yet I'm not a flake. <laughs> I still have a plan, and I still have a plan that I'm sticking to. And yet within the context of that clear vision that I'm sticking to and I'm working toward, I also have the ability to pivot and move. And I'm able to balance both of those things, 
without them being contradictions to each other. And that's why Judaism is, is, takes a lifetime of mastery, because to be able to balance opposites in a coherent way is, is not a simple thing. It's not a simple thing. And oftentimes, when you get into a situation like that, that's why everybody needs a Rebbe. You have to be able to ask someone, because oftentimes you can't give the best answer to that question. Right? Or the best, yeah, the best answer to that question. You have to ask someone. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.